From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. An effort at the Office of Personnel Management to solidify federal employee benefits during shutdowns is underway. A provision in the 2020 National Defense Authorization Act designates the Federal Employee Health Benefit Program and the Federal Employees Group Life Insurance as emergency services. GovExec reports employees of those programs would still report to work during a shutdown so other feds could make changes to their policies. The National Institute of Standards and Technology is asking for comments on a new final draft of security requirements for controlled unclassified information. NIST Special Publication 800-172 covers both federal programs and federal data in private sector systems. Federal News Network reports NIST will take comments until August 21st. The Department of Homeland Security is looking for a vendor to manage its hybrid computing environment. An update to DHS's data center and cloud optimization support services requirement says the vendor it chooses will manage the agency's data center at Stennis Space Center in Mississippi, other locations DHS provides or leases, and cloud environments from cloud service providers. The draft solicitation says DHS wants hosting and computer services, data storage services, and 14 other products and services. The House and Senate will work to reconcile their versions of the National Defense Authorization Act in the coming weeks. Here with what to watch in terms of strategy, readiness, and modernization as Congress works out 2021 authorizations. Mackenzie Eaglin, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, writing in Breaking Defense under the headline, The Top Five Really Important NDAA Policies. Mackenzie, thanks for coming on. I teased you before we went on the air that the radio DJ in me would like you to rank these in order so we can count them down. But the first one you write about is Navy procurement and the force structure assessment. What do you see happening there since the department can't seem to get a force structure assessment to present to Congress? It's been a really difficult year for the Navy. I you know, reflected last week with a large deck amphib burning for the better part of a week off the coast of California. Uh, right, so there's a lot of angst on the Hill about the Navy's um, uh, inability to deliver what's required by law and give that information to their overseers. But there's also a lot of concern in the Office of the Secretary of Defense about the Navy's plans, which is why Secretary of Defense Esper is withholding those documents currently. So Congress is waiting on the 30-year shipbuilding plan as well as the new force structure assessment, and they can't get either. So what they've done is try to grab the attention of the Navy in one version of the bill, which by withholding basically three quarters of their operations and maintenance funding, which would pretty much put the Navy uh, flat on its back. The second item that you write about is uh, the change to the use it or lose it operations and maintenance money. And you write, this is an authorizer versus appropriator brawl well worth having. What's at stake here? And what do the two sides, what arguments do the two sides give for the changes or that they want to make or keeping things the way they are? So basically the authorizers are weighing in on an issue that's going to be up to the appropriators. So the Congress typically gives the Pentagon a lot of flexibility in its spending as it should. It's a huge bureaucracy. It's a huge enterprise and organization moving globally every single minute of every day. And I mean, it's not that much money, but the flexibility is that important. But because the White House keeps misusing the flexibility for things like wall funding and other um, 
priorities that are not exclusively for the Defense Department. Congress is trying to rein it in. It did the same thing last year in uh, the authorization bill drafts, basically dropping this from you know double-digit billions to 1.6 or so billion in both bills, give or take. And so this is of great concern to the Pentagon, of course, wants to keep their flexibility. Uh, secondly, is the use it or lose it aspect, which is uh, the operations and maintenance funding typically for the department is one year money. But you know, not all defense dollars are one year spend term. So if you don't spend it by the end of the fiscal year, by September 30th, uh, you lose it essentially. You don't get that money back. It doesn't roll over into October at the start of the new year. And uh, Congress is finally, you know, it, the pandemic has done what Congress has been unable to do for so long in these bills, which is saying, look, you can hold that money over a second year, particularly in a year with so much um, uh, unforeseeable circumstances ahead. But really, it's not up to the authorizers, although it's a strong signal that um, both chambers and both parties support it in the authorization bill. Hopefully, the appropriators will agree. The third item that you're writing about is the elimination of the management uh, or the elimination of the office of the chief management officer. Um, Lisa Hirschman, the CMO, was on uh, our NATSEC 2020 virtual conference last week talking about $11 billion in savings that her office has nailed down. Uh, Jerry McGinn was on the program last week, former DOD official, saying no private sector company has a CMO. The Defense Department doesn't need one either. What will you follow as this, uh, this kind of this fight unwinds? It's fascinating because Congress dragged the Pentagon into this you know, what it didn't want to do, which was creating this position. It went back and forth over many years, and it finally has the position created with the first fully qualified person to hold the job. And she's only been in it six months. And now they're, say, they're trying to yank it back, basically to eliminate the CMO position and farm out most of those duties to the Deputy Secretary of Defense's office. Uh, but I see a strong case to keep the, the position and and keep her in it, frankly. I know there, the Defense Business Board report, it was very good and it looked, uh, it was it had a lot of good rationale, but the time frame over which it looked doesn't include uh, 2019 and, and this year for 2020. The Secretary of Defense calls Ms. Hirschman the Secretary of the Fourth Estate because of those reforms and savings and efficiencies uh, that you, when you spoke with her, she identified. Not only has she identified them, she's, she's done a unique thing over the department, which is not, use fuzzy math, right? So uh, too often in defense budget uh, debates and programming documents, uh, savings can just be something like, oh, well, we didn't put that under contract. And that's not a really a saving. So uh, Ms. Hirschman, you know, or calling it reform when it's not actually changing the way the department does business. She's been really focused on, you know, categorizing what's true reform, what's true change, what's really just simply a transfer of funds or duties elsewhere, what's a delay in a program. Uh, and, you know, nobody gets to call all savings reform anymore. We just have a couple of minutes left. So with all due respect, I want to skip over number four, which is keeping U.S. troops in Germany, and get to number five, which you term pitting the F-35 against the Virginia-class submarine. I'm not sure I would have expected at any point in the years that I've been following this to see Congress basically fighting it out between an airplane and a submarine. But here we are, Mackenzie. Here we are, and obviously, uh, right, and I, I wrote that on purpose to, to draw you in, and I'm glad it worked. Basically, Congress wants more of both, right? They want more fifth-generation tactical fighters, and they want more ships, particularly attack submarines. So both the House and the Senate bills uh, add money for this, but they differ 
And a $2 billion wedge is a big difference. Uh, they differ in $2 billion in spending on the Joint Strike Fighters and in how to build a second Virginia-class submarine, if in fact they do. I think they probably will. But, you know, the Senate adds 14 more Joint Strike Fighters across the services, uh, and uh, the House needs to figure out, you know, where they're going to, if they agree, where they're going to, to get that money and then agree on that with the Senate. So the Pentagon only requested one Virginia-class submarine this year, uh, but the House provided full funding for the second submarine this year. Um, the Senate only provided $472 million in advanced procurement for that. So we're thinking about the House is concerned about uh, shipyard workload, which, of course, impacts jobs, and they're worried about potential layoffs even in the midst of a pandemic if they don't budget for that second attack of this coming fiscal year. I think in the end they'll find the money to do both. A great list, and thanks for calling our attention to it. Mackenzie Eaglin of AEI, I appreciate you being on the program today. My pleasure. Thanks. Up next, private sector best practices to push forward the president's management agenda. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how your agency can prioritize high-value work. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Office of Management and Budget and the Office of Personnel Management will help agencies create new paths for government employees to move from entry-level positions to leadership roles. An update to the president's management agenda includes an emphasis on redeploying federal employees whose jobs are changing because more automation's coming. Mallory Barg-Bullman is Research Director of Finance uh, Process Excellence at Gartner. Mallory, welcome. It's good to see you again. What's your takeaway from the updates that OPM and uh, OMB are making to the PMA? Thanks for having me, Francis. So, you know, as you know, quarterly by law, OMB is required to release updates to the cross-agency priority goals. These are central, agreed-upon, sort of non-political management goals. And one of the things that continues to impress me is the importance of these goals. By design, you make sure that these central topics, whether it's moving from low value to high value work, customer experience, really are focused on by government agencies across, you know, across the enterprise. A lot of organizations in the private sector are doing these things well. I read on an ongoing basis about especially the financial services sector moving people from lower value to higher value work through RPA. Some agencies are really getting in on that game. What are private sector orgs doing well, Mallory, that the government has yet to realize the full potential of? That's a great question, Francis. So, you know, as you said, the question is always in my mind, what are the best organizations doing? So you want to look across sectors, you want to look across levels of government. And that's really where Gartner can come in. We do research looking at, at the best run organizations globally. So as I think about the path goal of moving from low value to high value work, that's like an easy thing to do. But OMB found in 2020 that on average, federal employees were spending just under 300 hours a week on tasks that they considered low value. When you consider that across the almost 2 million federal civilian employees, that's an opportunity to save or, or to gain really millions of hours of, of work. And so what you can look at is other companies. You know, Gartner does research every year looking at what best companies do. As, as I was thinking about today's conversation, I really came back to 
a U.S.-based telecommunications company. They have about 16,000 employees. So you're talking about a company that's the same size as like a NASA or a Department of Labor. And what they really found is that when they were adding customization to otherwise standardized processes, they were adding work. And so what they started to do is look at separating wants versus needs when they were deviating from standard processes. You know, in this particular case, it was financial processes, but you can imagine it looking at a grants process or looking at, you know, an acquisition process, really anything. And it doesn't require the type of investment that RPA or AI may need. At the beginning of our conversation, Mallory, I talked about the framework that's in this update to the PMA to help agencies uh, cultivate talent, essentially, to move them from entry level to leadership positions. The challenge for that is we've been following this, you've been following this, I've been following this happening in government for 10, 15 years or longer, and we're still following it, we're still not seeing it. What are companies doing in the private sector, especially given the fact that uh, a lot of people now don't want to stay at the same company for 10, 15, 20 years, they want to move to different jobs. What are companies in the private sector doing to try to crack that nut, Mallory? Yes, yeah, so uh, one thing that I've seen several companies in the private sector do is really understanding where their teams are spending their time. There was one US-based manufacturing company that really introduced process mapping. They wanted to make sure that for every process they were implementing, they knew what it required to get it done, who was doing it, how, much, how many hours it should take on average, and then points where there were deviations. So you wanted to make sure that when people are spending their time, that they're spending it in a way that really meets the goals of the company, that they're not kind of wasting time. But sometimes that's easier to, to realize what it is than, than not. And so they really wanted to make sure to operationalize as much as possible what those processes were. How do you translate all the changes that we've talked about so far into, I mean, essentially government process where there are things that the government has to do differently than the private sector can do them. Ways that the government can't move as quickly as a private sector organization can or something else. Yes, no, absolutely. And I think government can and should be different than the private sector. But there certainly are ways to look at processes, to look at operationalizing how people spend their hours, to look at talent acquisition and talent management that are certainly transferable. And some of the, you know, the different laws and rules governing government are there for very good reason, but that doesn't mean that they can't take some of the lessons around process efficiency that are well honed in the, in the private sector and really apply them across them. Mallory, thanks very much as always. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. Up next, more on the president's management agenda refresh straight ahead on Government Matters, the path to frictionless acquisition. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Frictionless acquisition is a new name for an acquisition cross-agency priority goal in the president's management agenda. 
Federal Procurement Policy Administrator Michael Wooten and Department of Homeland Security Senior Procurement Executive Soraya Correa will join the team to own that cross-agency priority goal. Greg Giddens is a partner at Potomac Ridge Consulting, former Executive Director of the Secure Border Initiative Program Management Office, Customs and Border Protection. Greg, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What's the difference between what the CAP goal looked like before and what it looks like now beyond this name, frictionless acquisition. So Francis, great to see you again. It, there is more than just a name change, it, but names are important. Even if you think about the name frictionless acquisition and think about friction, friction is taking kinetic energy and it being turned into heat. Uh, that's not what we need in our acquisition process. We need to maximize and maintain all the kinetic energy that we can to move forward. Friction also results in wear and tear. So I really love the vision and that's encapsulated by the term frictionless acquisition. It's clear what we need, but it is more than just a name. It's about taking the work that was done in the Program Management Improvement Accountability Act and that was passed and being implemented. And if you think about it, that's really more of a top-down approach. It's about uh, governance, OMB agency reviews, uh, top overview of the workforce. Now what frictionless acquisition does is take that top uh, down approach, combines it with a bottom up, really starting to look at the transaction level. Uh, how do you improve the transaction of the business? How do you use technology? How do you use different processes and procedures? How do you really help the process work better for both industry and government? So the mission is delivered. The PAMIA is important, program management is important, but this really brings it all together in more of a capstone goal. Uh, there are three main strategies in this, and I am curious about each of them because the first one is promoting continual input and process improvement. And my fear when I read that, as you well know, is that that might morph into changing requirements and moving the goalposts, which is death to an acquisition, right? right. Correct. Uh, and actually, one of the first things under that is something intended to prevent that, at least to minimize that from happening, because you're right, changing evolving requirements is, is death. It's, uh, it's really tough for an acquisition to stay on target when the target is moving. One of the early things that they looked at in terms of these process improvements is looking at the service acquisition workshops that have been sprouting up, and I believe they started in DOD, where you get that cross-cutting, that collaborative group together so that they can understand what's happening for the requirement and even at the beginning, you bring acquisition professionals in, so you start thinking about strategies and approaches and engagement with the industry. You talk to industry early in the process, and that cross-cutting collaborative group focuses on how do you make sure you get requirements right. So that is being addressed under there, but it is one of the key elements is making sure you really get the requirements right from the beginning. All right, second strategy here is supporting a high-definition acquisition information environment. What, what does that mean? I, there's, I don't know, I, there's, there's language there, not... Right. Uh, there is language there, and if I was a data science, I would have probably understood it the first time I read it. Exactly. Uh, but I'm not. So, but I went back and read it a couple of times, and it's really about understanding the billions of pieces of data that we have, and how do you take that data and turn it into information that can be used for decision-making purposes. That's really at the crux of this. We have lots of data, but sometimes we don't really have a lot of information. And taking that data and exposing it, uncovering it so that it's easy to get to. If an organization is trying to make a more informed decision and they have to do an archeological dig to find the data, 
they're just not going to have the time to do that. So how do you structure that data? How do you make it open and available and accessible, not just to government, but to industry? And look at all sources. Now, there's a lot of market intelligence that happens outside the federal government. So it's really about uncovering that data and make it available and accessible so that we can make better decisions. We can understand better about what we're buying, how we're buying it, so we can better leverage the market. Third strategy is creating pathways for the workforce of tomorrow. And it strikes me maybe the biggest challenge encapsulated in there, Greg, is making it compelling and interesting for a young person to want to stay in this field for an extended period of time and not transition out and go do something else. Am I reading that right? I think you're absolutely reading that right. That's one of the things that the federal government continually struggles with is how do you bring in that fresh new talent and how do you keep them engaged and keep them challenged and involved. And I think one of the best ways to do that is keep them connected to the mission. Uh, one of the strategies under that third uh, aspect is to look at the culture change that's required. You know, we, we grew up 20, 30 years ago in a very compliance-focused environment. And I want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with compliance. Compliance is good, process is good, but those are a means to an end. They're not the ends to themselves. I, I, I didn't meet any, well, I did know one or two people that would get up at five o'clock in the morning and be excited about going being compliant. But the people that, that really uh, want to lean in, they get up in the morning and think about the mission. So it's not an or, you can be compliant and contribute to the mission. And I think the way to keep people involved is to keep them connected and close to the mission. That, that's really what gets people excited. Um, about 30 seconds, Greg. What are you going to watch as this unfolds? I, I watch for a couple of things. One would be how agencies talk about the self-assessment that's contained in this uh, cross-agency priority goal. Do they just talk about it in a memo to OMB, or do you hear the leadership talking about it either where they're on the Hill or when they're out talking uh, to various industry associations uh, or kind of making the circuit in town? Are they really taking this on? And the other will be, are they looking at all aspects? Are they looking at technology, people, and process? If you only want to do one of those, you're not really interested in, in going forward. You have to integrate those together to really have a meaningful impact. Greg Giddens, thanks as always. Great to see you. Great to see you, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.